This is Livin' the Breed with Fox News Chief Legal Correspondent Shannon Breed. I am very honored to welcome to my podcast, Live in the Bream today, the man who's the reason I am at Fox News and have been so blessed to be here for 10 years, the one and only Britt Hume. Welcome, Britt. Thank you, Shannon, but I'm not the reason you're here. You're the reason you're here. <laughs> well, listen, in large part due to you, and you know what? We we should tell people a little bit of the story. You may have a different remembrance or version than I do, but I remember you were giving a speech that my husband had, had been involved with booking some of the speakers for this thing. It was early in the morning. Morning, and he said to me, I, I had anchored a local newscast really late the night before, and he said, you got to go with me. Bert Hume's going to be there in the morning. Uh, I had tried fruitlessly to get my foot in the door at Fox, and uh, they have so many great applicants all day and all night, uh, and I just had never made a personal connection with someone, but I met you at that speech, and one thing eventually led to another. It took some it took some time, but it worked out. I got a load of you, kiddo, and I thought, <laughs> we need to hire this woman, and you had everything we needed. You had all the on-air skills. You had the whole look. You had all of that to, in spades. And on top of that, you were a lawyer and serious about news and got what we were trying to do, got fair and balanced news. And you were a perfect fit. And it took a little while because we didn't have an opening at the moment. But from the time anybody here saw you, you were a, you were a shoe in. You are too much. And now I feel badly because I didn't invite you on the podcast to brag about me. But I thank you so much for giving me that chance and opening the door. And it's been a blessing to work with you and to be with the team at Fox here. You've made a huge uh, contribution years. here. Well, thank you, Britt. Now, let me ask you about some of the news of the day. And I don't even know where to start because it's so overwhelming. But let me ask you, because you've covered Washington uh, in depth, what does this atmosphere feel like to you based on what you've seen over the years? It's the most intensely hostile political atmosphere I've ever seen both between the, the the two political factions, the left and the right in Washington, the Democrats and the Republicans. And it's also the most intensely hostile atmosphere that any president, in my experience, which goes back you know, almost 50 years, has ever experienced. Um, some of that, of course, he, he stirs. But um, there's an atmosphere in this town within, within the media that seems to be that because he's this exotic character who doesn't really resemble what any of them thinks a president ought to resemble, that, that journalists, many of them, are relieved of their obligation to cover him uh, neutrally. And we have the most biased coverage I think I've ever seen. Well, uh, it's interesting to hear you say that because when you bring up that characterization, some people say, oh, you're exaggerating. Washington's been crazy all, all along, and the media has always had something going on uh, that doesn't equate to this. But you're saying basically what you are seeing now is unlike what we've seen in the past. It's just a great degree. I mean, Republican presidents and even some Democratic presidents have encountered an adversarial media. That's been true for a long time. The model for that was kind of set during Watergate when reporters, you know, ordinary newspaper reporters rose to a level of fame and stardom and heroism, even in the eyes of many, that they'd never attained before. I mean, they'd been stars on newspapers and famous journalists, but, but people didn't make movies about them the way they did about Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. And that created a new model for the atmosphere and covering the presidency and to some extent Congress as well, but the presidency in particular. And that is obtained through Democrats and Republican administrations alike, always more intense in Republican years because reporters tend to be liberals and they tend to be more sympathetic to the goals and, and the policies of Democratic and therefore liberal presidents.
presidents. Uh, but this is uh, this is something that is is greater than than I've ever seen. You know, I, I think of the example of over the last couple of weeks, there were documents that were declassified, essentially or released um, from the office of the director of national intelligence that showed the FISA court had actually chastised the Obama administration, which came in, in, at the very end of uh, President Obama's term, his second term, and said essentially we haven't been following the rules. There's we've been playing fast and loose with information about Americans and surveillance and all that kind of thing. Got uh, quite a rebuke from the FISA court, and it barely made a ripple out there. And I have to believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe I am, that if this had happened under Bush 43's presidency, it, it would have led the every network that night. Well, we've all remember, Shannon, all the stories that were done about the various forms of surveillance and and you know examination of and collecting of phone call records and all of that that were all been done and that started in the aftermath of 9/11 that were part of the effort to counteract terrorism uh, that made huge news when they were uncovered and reported. In some cases, it was classified stuff that was uncovered. In some cases, it blew up the programs because once they came to light, they were useless. So I think you have ample grounds for suspecting that had this been had been revealed about a Republican president about Bush 43 in particular that it would have been it would have been big news. And when it happened with regard to the Obama presidency, it was not. Now, of course, he was gone. That administration was over, but it wasn't so long over that it wouldn't have been a big story if it had been a Republican. Well, you know, we talk about being fair and balanced, but often it's not just how you tell the story. It's the stories you choose to tell and the ones you choose to ignore. Um, talk about that, how, how, you know, currently the mainstream media is by highlighting and, and focusing on certain things uh, while ignoring others. And I often think, too, about things that have been uncovered with Planned Parenthood. I mean, their their latest uh, yearly report that they do just came out. There was a lot of information there that was very interesting, and it was from their own numbers and again, no traction anywhere on an important discussion, especially when we're talking about funding, defunding, uh, and the reality of what their numbers show. Well, there's that story is a good example, uh, Shannon, because reporters are generally uh, pro-abortion rights. And so when Planned Parenthood is shown to have you know, done some extravagant number of abortions in a particular year, that doesn't particularly strike them as news. Similarly, um, on a somewhat different topic, Hillary Clinton came out this past week in this, in this interview that was widely broadcast and reported, at least widely available for broadcast and reporting, with this extraordinarily vast conspiracy theory, not the first she's articulated about the right, uh, about how she lost the election. And I searched the New York, and it was, oh, it was really, really quite bizarre, her claims. Oh, yeah. I mean, we made, we made a graphic of it, and people actually thought we were kidding. It was all the excuses and people that she had credited yeah, with her loss. Yeah, we got Mac Netflix, Macedonian <laughs> yeah. hackers, and 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 the rest of it. It was quite extraordinary. And I searched the New York Times and the Washington Post, who were the sort of the bellwether publications in Washington, and affecting national political coverage, in vain the next day for any mention of these things. Now, somewhere in the Washington Post website, there was something about it. But I, I'm telling you, now, I understand it got a lot of coverage on some of the cable news channels. Um, but I, I you know, it was a wonderful example. It just somehow didn't strike these people as news. And in my opinion, it clearly was and is. 
Well, what do you think led to her uh, election defeat? How much of it had to do with her? How much of it had to do with President Trump? How much of it was just this general discontentment with both parties and the fury that people felt at Washington? I think all of those things were in play and might have been surmounted by a more appealing candidate with a more appealing message. After all, we kind of got to the end of the Hillary Clinton camp campaign. And it was still a good question of what her campaign and, and candidacy was really about. Partly, we know it was about getting the first woman elected president, a goal that a lot of people thought was important. But a great many Americans are not going to vote for somebody just because they're of one gender or the other. Uh, that just isn't what people are concerned about. And 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 and, and her her slogan was called "Stronger Together." What whatever that means. Trump, meanwhile, for all of the his, you know, alleged failings, had Make America Great Again, which was not necessarily original to him, but it was a good slogan. And it rang the bell with a lot of people who thought America had deteriorated as, a, as, a, as the country they knew and the one they believed in and the one they thought would provide them opportunity and the rest of it. And that was a winning slogan. But I think, you know, the reasons why people win or lose elections are manifold. You cited some of them. There are others. I'm sure to some extent she was harmed by the revelations about John Podesta's emails. But it's impossible for me to believe that the leak of those emails and the reporting about them was decisive because they weren't her emails. The, the emails that were hers were the ones that were on that server, which would, which had been undisclosed and arguably illegitimate, uh, hardly proper way to handle classified information. And she referred to that in her, mm -hmm. in her claims last week as a nothing burger. Well, it was not a nothing burger. It was a serious matter. Uh, so James Comey thought so. He certainly did. <laughs> and uh, about whom we're about to hear, from whom we're about to hear more this week, I think. Uh, this president really got no honeymoon period. I mean, from the minute he won, I saw a lot of people in sackcloth and ashes. And I mean people in the media uh, who are supposed to. We hope that we all are objective and, and fact-based in covering uh, people. But even over the weekend, we saw some outrageous things. Uh, there was a correspondent on another cable network who intimated or asked whether this president was trying to incite a domestic terror attack, hinting at some, something that would be to his benefit. I, it, it is odd. As you said, it seems that people have abandon their post as an objective reporter. That's right. The, the, the old concepts of neutrality are kind of out the window at the moment. And, and I, you know, I think it's, a, it's kind of a dark moment in the history of our nation's journalism. But Trump is a figure who's, you know, who incites a lot of passions. And, you know, our objective should be to kind of guard against them and try to look at him neutrally. And, you know, Shannon, it's not that we should be unbiased. We can't be unbiased. We're thinking people. We have our opinions. The important thing is if we have a bias, to recognize it. Now, you're a lawyer, and you know very well how lawyers and judges every day have to set aside their personal biases to handle cases. Lawyers have to represent plaintiffs that they don't believe in and don't like, and they have to do a creditable job, and much, much, most of the time they do. Judges have to, have to uh, uh, handle cases, adjudicate cases in which they don't like one party or the other, and their job is to set that aside. It's not mission impossible, but it begins with a recognition of your bias and an acknowledgement of it, first of all, and primarily to yourself. And once you do that, 
it's not so hard. And that was the training I had coming up was that, you know, you, you screen your biases out and view things as neutrally as you can. And if you do that, you can do it. Um, I think a lot of journalists feel that they're not obliged to do that anymore in this in the case of this particular president. Well, and I think a good barometer, too, is Twitter, which we should never use to, <laughs> to run our lives. But when people say, oh, you're obviously such a closet liberal, and then the next day you have somebody, you're obviously so crazy far to the right. Um, I, I think if people have a hard time pinning you down, a lot of times they're projecting their own frustrations onto you. But listen, I got to say, you are somebody who dwells, uh, does very well um, with the Twitter trolls, with the people who want to take shots at you. You, you know, you'll engage with some people, but you do so in a very gentlemanly, dare I say, way. Well, I try to be. Um, I'm, you know, at my age, I'm, I came out of a different era, and um, I've always thought that it was you know, more powerful to be courteous um, and try to make an argument. You know, people who name call, seems to me they contribute nothing to the argument. They add nothing. Uh, any impression they make doesn't last. And so there's, I, I just don't think that works. And I try not to do it. And I block people on Twitter regularly who do it. You know what? I love the mute function because it's the same as sort of blocking them, but they don't get to know you're blocking them because some of them take that as a badge of honor. I like the mute function on Twitter. It's become a very good friend of mine. I find Twitter to be an enormously useful early warning system um, <laughs> because if a story breaks, yep. it's going to hit Twitter almost instantly and sometimes before it hits the wires. Mm -hmm. it, is, it, is, it is very helpful to me. And you know, who would have thought that an old guy like me would be, you know, would be a Twitter guy? But I find Twitter very helpful, very useful. And, you know, I follow people who post useful and interesting things, often with links mm -hmm. to articles or, or information that I might not otherwise find out about. It. So I think it's I think Twitter is terrific. You have mastered it. And I, I, too, like you in the morning when I get up and I'm checking email and kind of waking up for the day. Twitter is generally one of the first things that I do check because if something's trending, if something's happened overnight, especially overseas, because, you know, that's so much of what we follow as well these days. It's also the fastest way to get to ball scores. True. This is true. <laughs> Which leads me to my next question, because I know you do things besides work. I, I know it firsthand, uh, but I want to ask you about a few of your personal favorites. So, sports teams or athletes. Well, I grew up here, Shannon, in Washington, and so I'm I'm a devotee of the Redskins. It's in my blood. Uh oh. I couldn't shake it if I wanted to. I Have you been, wanted to? Well, there are times when I <laughs> wished I didn't care about them so much, but it's in my blood. I can't help it. It's an affliction sometimes, and when they're good, of course, it's a great joy. Uh, I was also a fan of the old Washington Senators mm -hmm. team. It's now the Minnesota. Twins, and then I was kind of a fan of the of the expansion senators that came after that, but they moved to Texas. Mm -hmm. So uh, after two lost teams, I decided I needed to transfer my loyalties to some other ball club. So I became an Orioles fan, a Baltimore Orioles fan, and it wasn't that far to drive over to see the games, yeah. and I got to be kind of an Orioles fan, even though I remembered them from my Washington Senators days as the St. Louis Browns, which is what they were oh boy. <laughs> before they were the Orioles. Yeah. And now comes, and remember, the Senators and the Twins and, and the Texas Rangers. They're all American League teams. Mm -hmm. The Washington Nationals, who are here now and are really a good team with a lot of yes, great they players, are. and they got a great new stadium and all that, it's a National League franchise, and I just have never quite adapted to them. I check the scores. I want them to win. I root for them. But it doesn't have the same emotional connection that I had with the old Nats, the old, the old Nats. You know, listen, they called the Senators Nats. Right. And now, listen, you can have options. You can have your A. AL teams, but when you dip in the NL, just join us with the Nets. Yeah, that's 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 sort of how that's sort of 
sort of how I look at it. Okay, so what about ice cream? Favorite flavor? It says a lot about a person. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, you know, I, I, I like coffee ice cream <gasps> with, chocolate, I do too. With, with chocolate sauce. Oh, my goodness. Do they keep you up all night, though, that combination? Well, I, I don't, I'm not a good sleeper, and I take a cocktail of medications every night that would knock a buffalo out, and they barely <laughs> get me to sleep. So I have, oh, I, no. do have to be, I have to I have to be careful at night. And I, and I also, uh, the other addiction, of course, is that first cup of coffee in the morning, which I, I'm barely, I can barely walk without it. Oh, my goodness. So that's how I start out. Strong black coffee, dark coffee, dark blend, roast, dark roast. None of this girly stuff. Well, I just, the other stuff tastes like tea to me, and, I, and I'm not a tea drinker, so I'm a coffee-holic. Okay. Well, you know what? I gave up. I had to give up caffeine about almost two years ago. Oh, my. Yes. And, and with the job that we do, I'm not going to say it's been easy. I'll bet. But I do sleep a lot better now. That's yeah, the truth. That's good to know. I do. Yeah. Um, something you and I uh, share in common as well is our faith. And I think it makes a difference in the work that we do. Of course, the relationships and everything else in our lives. Um, tell us a little bit about what it means in your life. Well, I, I was a, you know, I grew up and went to nine years to an Episcopal Boys Day School in Washington. And if somebody asked me if I were a Christian, I would always sort of automatically say yes. And so I was kind of a nominal Christian. One might even argue a fallen Christian. And I never, and I lived through most of my adult life never thinking much about God or Christ or any of the things that I would have told you if you asked me I believed in. When my son died, committed suicide, uh, now, what, uh, 18 or 19 years ago, I sort of came face to face with the question of what I believed. And I felt at the time oddly close to God. I felt that he was there, that he supported me, that, that he, and I kept thinking, it was, I had this very odd thought during all of that period of grieving right after his death, that I was going to get a phone call or some similar communication, and the voice on the other side was going to say, Britt, this is God, and this is what this is about, and this is why this happened. Well, obviously, I never received such a call, but I felt supported. I felt loved. I got an extraordinary outpouring from people all across the country. And uh, Shannon, at the time, to be on the Fox News Channel was second only to being in the witness protection program in terms of being Hmm. invisible. So I can, and and the outpouring was just amazing. And, you know, you look at me now and you say, well, I can see, you know, he's so visible and he anchored all those years. I might incur such a response. But back then it was very different. And, And I considered it a miracle. And I felt loved. I felt supported. I felt cared about and I, it changed me in a way that, that, that you know was quite powerful and so I kind of go around Shannon nowadays trying in however I can to reflect Christ in my dealings with people uh, you know I, I, I think it's I try to be kind to people I try to be courteous to people I try to I try to recognize people um, I, I wouldn't hold myself out as a great paragon of Christian virtue in any sense but I'm trying and what I've found about doing that is there's a lot of joy in it you know it, it just is and it's so much a better way to live and I agree so, with you. So I'm, you know, I, and I know how much your faith means to you, and I, you know it isn't easy because we all have our human failings, and they'll pull us down if we let them. But it's certainly worth the effort, and you know I think it, I think it makes life better, and and ultimately it makes life easier. You know I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I stole one of your tricks, and that if people ever stop by your office, they'll see that there's usually a Bible open on your desk. Yeah. And you know what I started doing that sometimes if I've read a verse in the morning, I leave it open. And it's interesting how it keeps things in perspective. 
It sparks interesting conversations, and I find it to be very comforting because so much of what we cover is very disturbing and tragic and divisive. Uh, and just having that literally physically within your uh, eyesight, your line of sight, uh, I find often can give you perspective on the day. Yeah, I do it to remind myself of what I what I believe, and I'm really not trying to virtue signal to anybody by having that open on my desk, but I want people to know that, that when, particularly when I was managing editor here, and you know, I had some supervisory authority of what went on here. I wanted people who were believers to know that this was a place where there was no hostility to believers, which I think, you know, in journalism in particular, journalists, journalists as a group are pretty secular. And I was just trying to let people know that, you know, if you're a believer, you're not going to be made uncomfortable here. Well, I admire you so much in so many ways. Well, and you, listen, I'm just I'm grateful for your leadership, for the time that you were in that position when I started with Fox uh, and your continued leadership uh, through many ups and downs and uh, political twists and turns and, and just events of the day. You're a steady guiding presence to so many of us who look up to you. Um, so thank you, Brett. Well, thank you, Shannon. God bless you. And you, too. Thanks for well, joining us on Living the Dream. It has it. been a privilege. My privilege. This has been Livin' the Bream on Fox News Radio.